Well, it's a great uh, pleasure to have Ned LeBeau back. Uh, I consider Ned a friend and former teacher and director here, and a lot of us know him. And he's also a very, very uh, prolific uh, scholar. He's the uh, James O. Friedman Presidential Professor of Government at Dartmouth and the Centennial Professor of International Relations at the London School of Economics. His research has ranged over a wide areas, political science, philosophy, uh, cultural theory. Uh, he's written three books since he's left Ohio State. Uh, <laughs> cultural theory. <laughs> cultural theory. Th- yeah. <laughs> yeah, in the last few years. <laughs> A Cultural Theory of International Relations that Cambridge published a a year ago or so has won the Jervis and Schrader Award for Best Book in International Relations. And Ned tells me recently also has won the Susan Strange Award as the Best Book of the Year by the International Studies Association. He's also published A Tragic Vision of Politics, Ethics, Interest, and Order, which won the Alexander L. George Award for the Best Book in Political Psychology. And his most recent book that Princeton just put out, uh, is Forbidden Fruit, Counterfactuals, International Relations, which I think did have some of its origins here yes. at Ohio State with Phil Tetlock and Jeffrey Parker. And Ned today is going to give us a talk. Uh, in some ways, it's a preview talk because he's going to give it for the United Nations Security Council uh, before much longer. So without further ado, uh, a person all of us, I guess, know well, Ned LeBeau. Thank you. Thank you very much. If I sit and talk here, can everybody hear me, or should I be in front of a microphone? You have a mic on, Nick. No, I have a mic on? They told me that was only for recording, but it actually broadcasts as well. Fine. So I can speak in a normal voice? Yes. All right. Thank you very much. First, let me thank Rick for the invitation. It's always a great pleasure to return to um, Rashan an institution that is dear to my heart, and one of the reasons it's dear to my heart is because of the people who are in it. And I look around and I see so many of you in the room, and uh, I'm very happy to to see you here and look forward to chatting with you in the course of the next couple of days. Uh, What I'm going to talk about today is a book that is in press with Cambridge University Press uh, due out Um, sometime in the late spring or early summer. And after much negotiation, we agreed on a title of Why Nations Fight, uh, Past and Future Motives for War. I'm going to talk about only one part of the book today. It's uh, empirical uh, findings from the data set I put together and their implications for theories of war. Uh, But the book is not only about theory but about practice and looks at the likelihood that interstate war is a rapidly declining institution. And the book itself is an outgrowth of my cultural theory of um, international relations where I made an argument through a number of case studies showing how concern for standing and honor and revenge, all of them expressions of what Greeks call thumos, or what we badly translate as the spirit, was a very powerful uh, motive for war, and one often pursued at the expense of strategic and economic interest. And that's an argument that, of course, cuts against the grain 
of the existing uh, uh, realist uh, paradigm and almost all explanations within it for war and indeed against rationalist uh, theories of war uh, for different reasons which I will explain. Uh, I thought it was incumbent upon me to try to nail down uh, this argument rather than just leave it a suggestion of some of my uh, case studies. So toward this end, I put together my own data set of wars from um, 1648, in other words, the treaties of Westphalia, until the present. I didn't use existing data sets for two principal reasons. Uh, one, I have uh, more specific requirements about the kinds of participants I want in these wars. And secondly, I was interested in um, examining uh, the motives uh, for them, which existing data sets for the most part uh, don't do, and certainly not in the way that, that I intended. So I want to spend some time uh, talking about the data set and how I put it together, although not too much time because one could easily get drawn endlessly into questions of uh, case selection and coding, and I'm happy to come back to that in more detail in the question and answer period, but into some of the findings of this data set because uh, uh, they're so apparent and so um, contrary to what existing theories would expect. But this is only the uh, first part of the book. And in this first part of the book, as I've suggested, I examine war in terms of diverse motives for it. And those motives that I pick, in addition to, to standing, are security, uh, which is the obvious uh, realist motive, material interest, the obvious liberal slash Marxist motive, uh, revenge, which, as I noted, I consider yet another expression of, uh, of the spirit, and then I have a residual category of other. And other mostly includes uh, wars fought for domestic political reasons, uh, for the survival of a or advancement of a particular uh, group with, uh, within, within the country. But the important thing from my perspective is not only demonstrating the uh, relative importance of these several motives for interstate war, but exploring the reasons for why these motives are pursued by force as opposed to by other means. And so the second part of the book takes a step back and examines each of these motives and asks the question of why and how the motive became aggregated with war and whether we're now in the course of an age where one or more, and in fact, I argue all of these motives, are becoming disaggregated uh, from war. That increasingly, you can't achieve them through the use of force. And many uh, scholars and many leaders have come to understand this in part. Uh, but not, I argue, the United States. And the end of the book, which is undoubtedly the most controversial part, I argue that the U.S. is the probably the greatest threat to the peace of the world um, at the moment as a result of what I call a perfect political storm. 
And I hope I have time to, um, to get to this. I assume I have about 40, 45 minutes, and then I started at quarter past. So let me go through um, the data set, talk about the future of war, and then the problem uh, that the United States, not China, but the United States, uh, poses to, to the peace of, of the world. Now, uh, in putting together this data set, my concern was to have wars in which great powers and rising powers were involved. Um, and I had to have at least one of each or one of, from either category on the opposite side. So I, for purposes of my analysis, I excluded all kinds of colonial wars which account for the lion's share of, of these conflicts in any case. I excluded things like the Boxer Rebellion and the Western Response where all of the dominant and great and other powers were allied on, on, on the same side. Uh, I ended up with a total of um, 94 wars. And at some length in the book, I just, of course, addressed the question of what constitutes a war. I mean, this is, a, after all, is my dependent variable. I need to uh, address it effectively. And uh, the difference between uh, wars and other kinds of conflicts. And then I spend an equal uh, amount of time uh, looking at the categories of powers uh, that I'm using for purposes of analysis. So who's a great power? What is a great power? Can we talk of great powers before 1815 when the term achieves official recognition? Uh, when does one stop being a great power? Uh, these are all very thorny analytical questions, and I've tried to do two things, to be absolutely transparent in my coding, telling you when I code a state as a great power and when it's no longer a great power, and secondly, giving you reasons why, uh, relying fairly consistently on very highly regarded secondary studies of uh, European diplomatic history of the centuries in question, and there are five or six. Uh, Paul Schrader, who has a quantum association with uh, the Mershon Center, being one of them, that are highly regarded. And when there's a consensus among these authors, uh, there's no real problem. Where there's a disagreement, I note it and uh, pick a date and give some reason uh, why. I've also played around with coding my data with different dates, and it really doesn't come up with anything that's significantly different. So the results are not sensitive, I argue, to these choices. So I code for great powers. And then I also ask myself, is there a period uh, when, there are, when there is a dominant great power, one that is considered by others really to be uh, more powerful and to be in a position of leadership more than others? And so for, uh, for example, much of the 18th century, Louis XIV's, uh, uh, Louis XIV's France uh, would have qualified in the 1945 period. Uh, the U.S. might be considered the dominant power. So I have dominant powers, and I give arguments and, and codings for them. And they're a subcategory of great power, but I, I, I count them separately. Then I have a rising power. 
And rising powers are states that want to achieve recognition but haven't yet as great powers. And engage in um, start more wars uh, than most states and spend a higher percentage of their uh, income on their military uh, than other states and are perceived as rising powers by others. And rather than having a tautological definition, the behavioral one, I use the perception by existing great powers of who's a rising power at the time. Uh, and I have a, a table of who they are and when they succeed or not in becoming great powers. Among my great power category, I have another subset, which is declining great powers. Great powers that may even have once been dominant powers like Spain, uh, which are seen as on the decline and no longer so powerful, but for many reasons still maintain the appellation of, of great power. Uh, Spain was a case in point throughout much of this period. Huh? Uh, Poland, until it ceased to exist as, uh, as a state. Uh, the Ottomans, uh, later um, there, there are other, other examples. And then I have a residual category of, of other, which are uh, you know, weaker states. And I have them there because you'll, you'll see how they come in. Uh, so those are my categories of states. And what I have done is to put together this data set, as I told you, that involves wars that have at least a uh, rising or a great power on, on both sides, and then to look at who was the initiator of the war. In most cases, this is unproblematic. Uh, in some cases, it's difficult and an artifact of definition about who initiated a war. I mean, case in point is the Franco-Prussian War. I mean, official initiator was France, who declared war on Prussia. But, of course, it was Bismarck's Ems dispatch that was deliberately intended to create a condition in France where Louis Napoleon would have to uh, declare war. So that's, that's a more problematic case. And there are about a half a dozen of these uh, which I, I discuss and engage uh, in multiple codings of uh, to make sure I'm not making a, an arbitrary choice. And here, too, I've looked at the data depending on how I code it, and it really doesn't make much, much of a difference. So I have the data set, the initiators of war, and then I come to the motives of the initiator, which, of course, uh, is a little more problematic because it requires much more in the way of interpretation. And how we determine what the motives are uh, really requires uh, looking at uh, primary documents uh, very carefully, the uh, secondary studies of the period, uh, to see if one can uh, piece together a clear picture of what moved the initiator to go to war. Uh, existing data sets that do this in part, uh, uh, Cal Holstey's is a case in point, are not very helpful to me because they code for such things as was territory uh, the objective of war. And they find, for example, that territory was the objective for most wars, which is not surprising, but of course it doesn't tell you whether the territory was wanted for reasons of standing, security, revenge, 
or material interest. And I try to look at this in every case and uh, discuss those cases which are problematic. And what I do in my coding, I have a second coding rule, which is always to bend over backwards in favor of the other side. So wars, for example, 1914, which I consider personally an unambiguous uh, uh, case where uh, Austria-Hungary and Germany were initiators motivated primarily by conditions of standing, huh? would fly in the face of the conventional realist interpretations. So I make security a co-equal uh, motive. And in a number of cases where existing literature disagrees with my interpretation, I code it in favor of the other side, or I engage in, in multiple codings. Uh, and here, too, uh, I argue, even when I, I, I do this to make sure I'm not weighing the data set in my favor, that either way I run it through, uh, this, the differences in outcome are not terribly significant. I then code for the outcome of the war. Was the initiator successful in winning the war? And of course, we have rationalist theories beginning with uh, Bruce uh, Bueno de Mesquita's war trap uh, who argue that war occurs because it's easy for initiators to win and they understand this and go to war. So a finding that suggests that initiators <laughs> win less than half of the wars that they start uh, creates a strong anomaly from the rationalist uh, perspective. Well, let me take some time and go through my data. Now, all of you know that I never lecture from notes and I never use PowerPoint. Um, I, I'm going to make an exception with the notes today because I can remember almost everything but numbers. Um, and it's not just by age. Even when I was young, I, co I couldn't do it. I can't even remember my own telephone numbers, which I have to keep uh, written down. So I certainly couldn't remember the uh, percentages and numbers for all of these relative categories. So I, in preparation, prepared some slides uh, to show and um, then couldn't get my computer to run um, this morning. So I have the old-fashioned uh, hard copy, and I'm going to read out some results uh, against uh, six propositions uh, that I set up uh, to test which are all derived uh, from my uh, cultural theory of war, uh, which I'm now applying specifically, a cultural theory of IR, which I'm applying to war to produce what you might say is a cultural uh, theory uh, of war. So let me run through the propositions now and the empirical data um, that, that I have for it. All right, my first um, proposition, which, as you can see, derives from the concern for standing is that the uh, most aggressive states are rising powers seeking recognition as great powers and secondarily dominant powers attempting to achieve hegemony. Okay? So in the first case, we know that traditionally in the European system, and the data is mostly European until the late 19th century where it becomes international, but according to European rules, the way you became a great power was by slashing and burning. Well, you, you had to demonstrate your military skill. 
It wasn't the only thing you had to do as a great power, right? You had to uh, be seen as a state who would be willing to uphold the values of the system, which is why Russia, even though it became a great power in military terms uh, with Peter the Great's uh, defeat of Sweden, uh, was still described uh, by Leibniz as the Turk of the North uh, because it was seen as uh, really antithetical uh, to the values of the European system, and the Soviet Union continued that, uh, uh, that, that record, um, so to speak. But the principal and first and uh, initial requirement for great powership is victory at war. So rising powers do this. Secondly, and this too flies in the face of all kinds of uh, rational uh, theories of war, uh, great powers who are the dominant power in the system, who basically are benefiting from the way the system is set up, are willing to pursue war at great risk, it turns out, with not that much possible benefit. And so they're the other aggressive category of towers. And here's my data. Uh, dominant powers accounted for uh, uh, 24, well, I should note that of my 94 wars, I had 119 initiators because many wars are initiated by more than one state. And where there was some controversy, as in the case of the Franco-Prussian War, about who the initiator was, I coded both just to be um, on the safe side. So I had 119 initiators. And dominant powers accounted for 24 and rising powers, 27. So 47 of the 94 wars. Now, they, that may not sound like um, uh, that much of a, uh, uh, an effect, but you have to consider there are very few dominant powers in the system. And for much of the period in question, there wasn't a dominant power. And there are only a few rising powers at most at any given time. So if I take all the years of the data set and multiply them by all of the powers in all of the categories to get a, a gross number, and then take as a percentage of that the number of years of rising powers and dominant powers, I get a percentage. And what happened is that uh, dominant and rising powers account for only 33% of the state years, uh, but 46% of all wars. So it is a disproportionate effect, um, and it, it's a powerful one. Now, let me, before I go on with the results, tell you a little something, which I should have a moment ago, about how I use statistics uh, in this uh, study. I use them in a purely descriptive sense. Uh, I haven't done T-squares, regression equations, or anything else. And I haven't done that for two, I think, very appropriate um, reasons. Uh, normally, one tests for significance when you have a sample. And indeed, you have to, to know if your sample is representative of the universe at large. What I have here is the universe of cases. So I don't have to worry about it being representative, because by definition, uh, it is. The second reason you might do this, even when you have a universe of cases, 
is if you want to use your findings for purposes of prediction. In which case, you would tell yourself, this universe of cases I have is really a sample of all of the cases that could happen. And in this instance, uh, it's worthwhile for me to make that test. In the second half of the book, I argue that I can't predict anything from my sample because the cultural conditions that led to the aggregation of these motives for war is changing. And so, in fact, I don't want to make linear projections, quite the reverse, from my data set. So that addresses the internal significance of it. But then there's a second uh, equally compelling reason why I engage in descriptive statistics here is let's suppose that I can show that standing is responsible for 70% of all wars or it's responsible for 50% or 30%. What do those figures mean? In order to do any kind of statistical test, we'd have to have a benchmark that would tell us at what level we reach significance. Was it 30%, 50%, 70%? And there's no objective way of doing this. It's a kind of rhetorical presentation that addresses the question that honestly each of you and each reader has to decide what level is significant. This is a matter of judgment, uh, not a matter of statistics. So I present the evidence and the numbers for you. I make an argument about what I think is is significant, but it's up for you, uh, up to you, to decide if that's so. So with these reasons... Um, I'm pursuing a descriptive statistic strategy. Huh? Now, let's turn to motives, uh, where the finding is really quite dramatic. Uh, some initiators had multiple motives uh, for reasons not only of difference in how we might code them, but some initiators indeed went to war with multiple motives. I mean, think of the U.S. and the coalition that went into the first Gulf War. Clearly, there were security motives and there were economic motives. And rather than trying to rank the two, I'm perfectly willing to see them as, as, as important uh, and, and code them. So that's one of many cases where there are, in fact, multiple motives, not just disagreements about what motives were uh, by scholars. So I had 107 uh, motives for 94 wars. Uh, standing accounted for 62 or 58% of the total. Uh, By contrast, security had 19 cases, which is 18%. Revenge, 11, which is 10%. And interest, 8 cases, which is 7%. So if I add revenge and standing together, it's 68% of all wars in comparison to only 18 uh, for, for security. Um, And what's interesting is historians consider the 18th century the age of dynastic conflict when uh, there was, of course, the most um, uh, wars fought for standing by leaders who attempted to achieve it this way. But what I don't find is much significant difference across centuries. 
the percentages are roughly the same in the 18th, 19th, and 20th centuries. Uh, by the way, this isn't true for material interest or security. For material interest, almost all these wars are in the 18th century. And the last uh, unambiguous war of material interest was Britain and France attacking Egypt. Hmm? And that's not in my data set because, of course, there wasn't a great power on the other side. And the most recent war of this kind, which isn't in my data set, I would consider Saddam's attack on Kuwait. Uh, largely motivated by material interest, uh, trying to get the oil, get rid of the debt. Uh, that was a very powerful concern uh, for Saddam, who may have had other motives, but I think that that was at the top. But for the great powers, dominant powers, and rising powers, uh, it's not a very important, uh, important motive. So let's look at security. And this is uh, enigmatic, isn't it, that uh, security is such a minor motive uh, for wars. Huh? So I have 19 of 94 wars. Uh, and of these uh, uh, 18 initiators, seven of them were, as far as I can tell, at least equally motivated by standing. So security is, uh, is only one of them. I mean, a case in point is the um, Spanish-American War. Huh? where the U.S. goes to war against Spain, and certainly part of that reason was to establish itself as a great power. But the civil war in Cuba, which the Spanish weren't powerful enough to repress, uh, had led to a breakdown of civil society, spread of, uh, or an outbreak of yellow fever, which had spread to the southeastern part of the United States, where it was uh, playing havoc with the American population. So the U.S. had a real security motive and, in fact, publicly made that uh, paramount uh, in its decision to intervene. And, and that motive has to be honored. It's not just a rhetorical uh, screen. So uh, what is important about security is that the finding that standing and revenge together are the dominant cause of war doesn't mean that security is unimportant, right? Because if you're one of the states being attacked, it's all important. Okay. So from the perspective of the defenders in any of these wars, they were wars of security. So I don't mean in any way to diminish the importance of security as a national concern. I'm distinguishing, however, security as a cause of war. Huh? Proposition two, rising powers and dominant powers rarely make war against each other. Just the opposite of what power transition says. Huh? That rising powers and dominant powers, that's the cause of systemic war, right? Because the dominant power either goes to war to prevent the rising power from challenging its uh, leadership, or the rising power goes to war to make the system over in a way that it would like. Dominant powers initiated 24 wars, rising powers 27. They only fought each other on two occasions. And both of those were, um, can't be explained by power transition, okay? Uh, so England's rising power uh, joined uh, uh, France's attack on Spain. And rising powers, um, I'm going to argue, uh, often join in coalitions started by great powers, uh, because there's pressure or there's opportunity for them to do so. But they're not the initiators 
in these wars. They're, they're basically piggybacking. And the war that went the other way uh, was, of course, uh, the Korean War, where China's a rising power, where the U.S. is a dominant power, where China's trying desperately not to go to war with the U.S., and the U.S. is blind to Chinese signals and basically blunders into a war with China that it didn't want either. Uh, I'll return to power transition because I think I can put the nails in its coffin quite effectively. Uh, proposition number three, the preferred targets of dominant and rising powers are declining great powers and weaker third parties. Now think about it. If you want to get hegemony or you're a rising power and you want to get recognized as great, makes a lot of sense to go fight states, particularly states that once had a reputation but are now softer targets. So this is why everybody beats up on declining powers. Almost everybody in the West who became a great power did so by fighting and winning a war against Spain. <laughs> and in the East, they did it against Sweden and the Ottomans. Uh, so this is a distinctive pattern. And my data here are that um, of the 27 wars initiated by rising powers, six were against declining powers, seven against weak powers. Rising powers initiated 10 wars against great powers, but all of them in which they were in coalition and secondary partners of great powers who had started uh, the wars. And a case in point is Prussia joining uh, Austria's, uh, excuse me, uh, Prussia joining uh, France and others' attack on Austria in 1740. So rising powers tend to be jackals. Uh, they close around for the kill. Uh, after the beast has been wounded by the great powers or even killed, and uh, they can pull off a leg um, here and there. And the same when they go to war against, against small powers. So not what you'd expect from um, proposition of power transition. And dominant powers initiated 23 wars. Um, the only one that was against the rising power was the case I gave you, the inadvertent war that the U.S. stumbled into in the Korean Peninsula. Proposition four, wars between dominant and great powers are most often the result of miscalculation leading to unintended escalation. Huh? So hegemonic war is a concept I throw out because it's already embedded in a theory about what the causes of these wars are. Uh, systemic war is the category I prefer, which is a war that involves most, if not all, of the great powers. And I have a list of, like Joe McCarthy, I have my list, but I'm actually, I'm showing you my list. Uh, and the numbers aren't changing, at least not this week. Uh, I have a list of nine systemic wars, and a couple of them, like the Napoleonic, French Revolutionary and Napoleonic Wars and World Wars I and II, I break out into their component parts. And the striking thing is that none of these were started deliberately by dominant powers or rising powers. In most cases, they were started by dominant powers inadvertently. A <coughs> dominant power went to war with a weaker third party thinking it could get away with it and become even more powerful still. And great powers said, not on your life, and joined coalitions um, against it. So these are cases of uh, miscalculated escalation. And it, in the nine wars, it explains seven of the nine um, cases. And two other wars, 
the dominant power expected a coalition might take place, but was convinced it had the power to win and didn't. Uh, the bottom line here is that in each one of these wars, dominant powers started, they lost. All nine, unambiguously. Proposition five, miscalculation of the balance of power or the likelihood of escalation has deeper causes than incomplete information, which is, of course, the preferred explanation of neorealist Ken Waltz and, of course, of all rationalist theories of war, which are built in part on this uh, assumption. And I uh, try to show that in... Most cases, information was available that this was a risky, uh, indeed improbable venture, and that the dominant powers were insensitive uh, to this information or its implications for them because, A, they engaged in motivated bias, or, B, they were acting out of anger. And both... Uh, conditions lead to um, defensive avoidance. And I've made the case historically in another data set and series of articles and books that deterrence failures, immediate deterrence failures, were often attributed to this uh, phenomenon. And I can make the case that the same applied here. And in the case of anger, when you're angry, you're even less sensitive to, to information. Uh, and I use as my case, and I've documented it in cultural theory, uh, U.S. decision-making in the war leading up to the war in, in, in Iraq as a classic uh, example of this. And finally, um, weakened declining powers initiate wars against rising and great powers. Now, this is odd. Huh? Fourteen wars uh, declining powers started. Weak powers, four. They lost all of them. And in every case, declining power went to war for reasons of revenge. It had lost territory to a rising power, often playing jackal. And it looked for an opportunity to go to war against it to get it back. Uh, and it lost in every case, and the information was available in most of these cases that it would lose. Uh, as I'm running short on time, I want briefly to look at the implications of this and then turn to the U.S. Uh, uh, question. Rationalist theories of war assume initiators win wars or assume that anomalies are the result of incomplete information. Uh, and I think that uh, there's, there's no support for that. And I, I'm very clear in laying out the reasons why, and the evidence is very strong. Uh, point number two, there's no evidence for power transition. Dominant and rising powers tend to avoid war with one another or bungle into it. And interestingly... Transitions do not come before wars, but come afterwards as a result of them. So it's wars that cause transition, and wars have other causes. And there have, in fact, been relatively few transitions. Realist arguments. The security dilemma. The security dilemma undoubtedly creates and accelerates international tensions, but there's no evidence at all that it's ever responsible for a single war. And security overall is responsible for so few wars uh, that, as John Hertz himself, the father of the security dilemma, argued, it's a cause of tensions, but he says we have to be very careful about 
assigning war to the security dilemma. And I think that's clearly true. Balance of power. There's no evidence that concern for a balance of power was a cause of war because there are so few wars caused by security. However, hegemons have lost, excuse me, dominant powers have lost every bid for hegemony, which suggests that the balance of power works in preventing hegemonies from forming. So it doesn't prevent war, but it does prevent hegemony. Um, And finally, uh, there is the question, uh, this wonderful anomaly of weak and declining powers starting wars, uh, and dominant powers uh, being so poor in estimating uh, risks and costs of wars, all of which flies in the face of rationalist theories of war. And I think produces considerable evidence uh, that my arguments for standing and my explanations for why states uh, go to war for standing are pretty powerful uh, and have a lot of empirical support. Let me turn briefly now to the second part of the book. And what I do is I have a chapter on each of the motives. And I look at why and how it became aggregated as a, with war and why and how I see it in the process of becoming disaggregated uh, from war. And I make a case uh, for uh, this being true uh, of each of these motives. Uh, And I suggest that war as a phenomenon um, is on its way out, but not, and here's where uh, John and I disagree, Uh, John compares it to uh, uh, slavery and dueling, uh, that once people decided that they were bad, even immoral things, they stopped. Uh, But I argue that public opinion in the U.S., you know, at any given point is strongly anti-war in general. But presidents, and John, of course, also pioneered the rally around the flag uh, phenomenon, which I I cite, presidents are always able to mobilize public support uh, for war. So being anti-war doesn't mean that you oppose wars being proposed to you in specific circumstances. So uh, it's not really uh, like slavery or, um, or dueling, uh, that one has to look at, at deeper explanations for why it is declining. Now, in conclusion, let me look at the case of the U.S., uh, where I argue uh, that, as I said earlier, it's a kind of perfect political storm, that it's different from every other developed power, uh, and that's what makes it dangerous. So, wars of standing are an expression of honor cultures. Honor cultures are traditionally associated with aristocratic governments. They've gone. And in most parts of the world, uh, standing is pursued in other ways, become disaggregated uh, for war, and honor cultures have declined. The last robust honor culture in the developed world is in the American South, where it's alive and well. Who makes up the armed forces? disproportionately of the United States, Southerners. And the percentage of Southern officers and enlisted personnel in the armed forces has actually risen since the end of the Cold War. Every other country that's developed, and I include not just Western ones, but Japan, has become a secular country. In Europe, for example, the highest belief in God or a deity of any kind is found in Britain. 
and that's largely due to large numbers of um, South Asian and Irish immigrants. Uh, on the continent itself, it ranges from the high 20s down to about 12%. Okay? It's consistently over 90% in the United States. People in this country take God and religion seriously. Huh? Uh, 8% of Europeans believe in heaven. 76% of Americans believe in heaven. Interestingly, only 45% of Americans believe in hell, which I find... <laughs> I, I, won't, I won't go there. Well, if you believe in heaven, death has a different outcome. If you believe that you're going to go up there and you're going to be reunited with your loved ones, dying in a war doesn't have the finitude uh, that it does if you're secular and you believe with death, a basta, that's, that's it. Huh? So here, too, America is different. And, of course, what percentage of Americans have the highest belief in God and heaven? The American military. And who is it who pays the cost of wars in this country? Well, we know it's the American military. And it's not at least overtly a draft. I mean, it may be in some parts of the country a draft by poverty. Uh, but the rest of us float through. We, we, we may have to pay the cost economically, but not, not personally. And public opinion polls indicate, in part because of belief in God and the honor culture, that the people who are most willing to put up with fatalities in war are Southerners and even more so people in the military. So they're willing to fight them. And the U.S., uh, I argue, in cultural theory, is a kind of parvenu power, uh, still keen on uh, demonstrating its uh, standing. Uh, much, in my view, the Iraq War was a, an attempt to lock in the unipolar moment and to use America's unquestioned uh, comparative advantage in military force um, to do so without any recognition that standing and war and victory have now diverged. I mean, if you look at public opinion polls around the world, even at the point where the president proclaimed victory before the, um, uh, what's the word, not rebellion, uh, insurgency, thank you, before the insurgency began, the U.S. plummeted in standing and was ranked by Europeans, Canadians, and Japanese at that moment okay, as a greater threat to the peace of the world than either Iran or North Korea. And it's become even more so uh, in the intervening years. Okay? So the U.S. has plummeted in standing, and public opinion polls conducted by, I have four different organizations that have uh, conducted them, uh, show that people want to see the European community, the Japanese, India, China, all have more say in the world and more standing in the U.S. less. So, in fact, the use of force in the absence of uh, authorization by the world community for purposes that are seen to everyone's advantage uh, has the effect of undermining your status. American leaders haven't learned the lesson. And the new administration, uh, to my disappointment personally, is basically continuing with a very different uh, rhetorical cover uh, the policy of the old. So, for all of these reasons... The U.S. is a political storm, perfect political storm, but there's one more reason. The U.S. always spent disproportionately on its military. 
and now does so egregiously in comparison to other states since the end of the Cold War. Our military budget is the equivalent of the next six most powerful military states. Uh, Our absolute and relative spending is off scale. It's no secret that if you have a hammer, you look for nails. Uh, And as we have a, a government and a culture that tends to be parochial, that doesn't speak other languages, that doesn't know much about history and others' cultures, a culture that looks for technical solutions to things, the military instrument always appears uh, more attractive than careful plotting, more uncertain forms of diplomacy uh, and other mechanisms associated with it uh, that might in the long run more effectively uh, advance your foreign policy goals. So for this reason, too, uh, policymakers tend to reach for their sword and find a public opinion, for the reasons I've given you, more likely to support it, and a military that says, can do, yes, sir, and go off and fight it. Uh, So until this changes, uh, the U.S. is a threat to everyone. Thank you. Yes, I don't know all of you, so tell me who you are when you ask a question. Uh, Alex Thompson. Yes, Alex, you I know. Good to see you. Uh, welcome back. Well, let me just, for fun, give you, the, give you a rationalist counter-argument. Sure. Since you were hard on rationalism. Oh, not as hard as I am in the book. <laughs> so, so for rationalists, decisions about war shouldn't be emotional or principled reasons, right? There should be more cost-benefit. Absolutely. Now, that, that means that for rationalists, most wars should be averted. Right? You should find bargains short of war. You should use institutions to promote cooperation, right? Because you should never want to pay the cost of war if you can avoid it. So, given that the, the rationalist argument is that you should generally find uh, bargains short of war, we should see very few wars. So, isn't it possible, since you're only looking at wars, that for every hundred or so wars you look at, there could be 500 or 5,000 episodes that involve war-related decisions? I have no problem with that argument, but you should tell this to rationalist war theorists because what they look at is wars, not non-wars. If they thought, sought to explain non-war and did so in terms of finding bargains, that would make sense and it would fit, as you say, with their assumptions. But um, Bueno de Mesquita... Uh, Robert Powell, uh, Fearon, all these people say what we're going to do uh, is explain war. And so they're tackling what you call that that 1%, and as I'm interested in the phenomenon of war, in a way it's 100% of my phenomenon, they're saying that we have better explanations uh, for this institution uh, than other kinds of theories. And I'm suggesting that all the assumptions that they bring uh, and the ways, in addition, that they've coded their cases are simply wrong. Uh, in the case of coding, uh, Bueno de Mesquita uh, bases his argument on the premise that initiators win wars and starts with that and then seeks to examine why and how that happens. Well, we know initiators don't win wars. Uh, secondly, rationalist theories assume that whether states go to war or not, that they engage in some kind of reasonable uh, cost calculus. 
uh, to look at the, at the benefits and the costs and the risks. Uh, I argue that when we look at wars on the whole, and particularly the big wars, they don't uh, do this. Uh, thirdly, they don't even think about uh, what the motives are, because if you're going to have a rationalist argument, a rationalist argument is basically a shell of an argument. It says it's an argument about process. This is what people do. Well, to make it a substantive argument, you have to import assumptions about what their goals are. What is it that you're assessing? And what they do is they smuggle in uh, uh, either a realist assumption that it's about security or they smuggle in a liberal slash Marxist assumption that it's about wealth, uh, but they never really make it explicit. But it's central to their arguments, and I'm arguing that empirically there's no support for those assumptions. So I think I have a pretty strong argument against rationalism. Yes, sir. Um, you were talking about. Oh, Tell sorry, me who you are. Uh, Pleased to meet you. Okay. Um, you were talking about the different kinds of war, saying that um, there's revenge, there's security, there's economic settlement. How did you go about categorizing what war was what? Because what may be security in one person's eyes may right. be revenge in another person's Oh, absolutely. This I said when I got to the question of how I coded motive. Uh, this is the, the thorniest and most difficult part of of the puzzle, and obviously uh, people will accept or reject my arguments on whether they think I've um, coded accurately and fairly. So I've tried very hard with each case, and I have um, a, an appendix of the book that gives all of the codings and the reasons for each, each case uh, to A, make them transparent. So you just don't see a number, but you see reasons for each case. Uh, secondly, to rely on uh, well-respected um, historians who have examined these cases or to examine them further myself, even using primary motives. And number three, where there was any ambiguity or serious uh, disagreement, to, um, to use multiple coding. Uh, and what's interesting is that even if you code every case as security-driven that reasonable realists have tried to make an argument for, you still get a tiny, tiny number um, of wars. So I do think the findings are, are robust, uh, but that's for you to decide when you, when you read the codings. Because when, when I take a look at World War II, I mean, practically to every nation, it was something different. For Germany, maybe a double case of the economy as well as... But remember, I'm only looking at the initiators. Only looking at the initiators of wars, and, and I said very clearly that you know if an initiator goes to war for revenge or, or interest, and it attacks you, for you it's a war of security. You're you're being attacked. <laughs> uh, so it's from the initiators, and so for World War II, um, I've looked at Japan, um, Italy, uh, Germany as the principal initiators of that conflict. John. Yeah, we talk more about honor. Why have honor wars gone away? I mean, what's the process? What's the mechanism? Well, I think the mechanism is that um, let's go back to the notion of uh, warrior-based honor societies, where only a small elite, you know, the aristocracy, basically the great powers of the domestic society, were allowed to compete for honor. And they were only 
could only win it, and go back to the Iliad, which I use in cultural theory as the uh, prototype of this, through winning athletic contests or uh, military contests, which are basically versions of the same thing. Huh? Uh, and of course, what happened over the course of history is two things. Uh, more hierarchies opened up for winning honor. Huh? Even in ancient Greece, you could win it by being a, a playwright and winning it in a contest or being a rich man who supported a playwright or a tyreme for the city or being an orator in the courts. Uh, multiple hierarchies opened up and one of the defining features of the modern world is we have hundreds of hierarchies so any of us can win honor by excelling in an activity we're good at. Huh? Whether it's being the best spelunker in Ohio to being a, you know, a rock star or even a political scientist. Um, doesn't win much honor. <laughs> uh, so that's number one. And number two, it's now open increasingly to everybody. It's not limited to an elite. And uh, just look at the, the most elite-bound activities in the United States, uh, uh, golf and tennis, secretary of state. Uh, everybody used to be a wasp. Okay? And now, of course, we have women, blacks, Asian black. I mean, anybody can, uh, can do it if they have the skill. Huh? So that's changed. The uh, international system, in my view, represents an atavism. It's the last place where the values of the warrior honor society uh, were still entrenched. And that, I'm suggesting, was challenged in the modern time, first by the revolutionary French and Americans who demanded standing on another basis uh, and couldn't get it, did initially, but not much, so went back to the sword with a vengeance, as exactly did the Bolsheviks. Huh? Uh, but now there's another challenge underway by the European community, Scandinavians, Canada, Japan, Brazil, China, all claiming uh, standing and honor in the community on basis other than fighting wars. Huh? So the Europeans and the Japanese and Canadians argue that they're wealthy states that use their wealth to benefit uh, the well-being of their own citizens and spend a higher percentage of others in foreign aid and helping others maybe achieve this um, as well. So that's another claim for standing. And with the turn against war, you've had positive and negative reasons why winning wars no longer confers standing. And I think that that's reflected very accurately in the public opinion polls I cited about um, uh, the U.S. and Iraq and those polls apply to almost anybody who starts um, a war uh, these days. So uh, for those reasons, uh, it's, it's declined, and I think it will continue to decline. And as it does, states, to the extent, and here's where I'd make a rationalist uh, argument, I'd say if you're a rational state, you recognize that the way to persuade, to get others to do what you want, huh? there are Two generic ways of doing this. One is by bribing or coercing them, you know, a coalition of the willing kind of uh, uh, argument. And the other is by persuading them. And persuading them by saying, hey, it's in your interest and mine that we do this. Huh? And persuasion is much less costly, more effective in the long run. And when people act for common purpose, they also build to some extent common identities. Their interests come more together. Huh? And rational states will therefore shift their resources and the nature of their foreign policies because they want to pursue 
their interest and standing more rationally and effectively. And to the extent to which this happens, uh, those states that spend disproportionate amount of money on their military will become dinosaurs. The Soviet Union was a dinosaur, and the U.S. could well be the next one if it continues down this path. Sounds just like Dulles. Well, well, we'll have to settle that. You, you pick your second, I'll pick mine. <laughs> Alan. It's really a follow-up, I think, to uh, John's. Um, uh, so let me ask the, uh, the simple way. Um, what is standing? Yeah, okay. I, thank you. I, I actually should have, and I meant to. Uh, I, I left this out, one of the central pillars of the argument that I so take for granted, and I writ, wrote so much about in the cultural theory book that in the lecture I didn't describe what it was. In the book I have a whole chapter examining these motives and standing. And uh, what I argue is I go back to, uh, <laughs> I should tell you about this, to the ancient Greeks, uh, and I argue that in addition to appetite as motives, Greeks also saw reason and thumos, and that thumos ultimately refers to the universal human desire for self-esteem. And the way we achieve self-esteem is by excelling in activities that our peer group and our society uh, value. And of course, that becomes a competition. And by winning the approbation of others, we in turn feel good about ourselves. And I'd argue appetite is too, but standing even more is, while it's universal, how it's manifest is determined culturally. So societies pick different ways in which people excel and are rewarded. Now, when you do this in a rule-based system, you win honor. But these competitions are acute because honor is a very steep hierarchy and it's relative. As Hobbes noted, if everybody has it, nobody has it. Huh? So there's a tendency to, uh, to cheat uh, and, and to do things that uh, end up threatening others or convincing them that unless they play fast and loose with the rules as well, they're at a disadvantage. Huh? This is what happens with cheating in schools. At a certain point, you get a phase transition where almost everybody cheats, if enough people do. So standing is this competition that's no longer rule-based. And it is uh, primarily a question of uh, who can uh, be at the top of the hill, whatever that hill is, uh, by any means. Huh? As opposed to uh, honor, which is uh, that situation uh, won by the rules and conferred on you uh, by others. And of course, great power status always involved uh, both a degree of standing and, and honor. Huh? And one of the interesting things, and I, I don't have time to make the case here, I do in the book, is the way in which uh, the 20th century became mostly about standing because the rules of the system so frequently uh, broke down. Uh, but there's a real attempt now to reintroduce them and with the reintroduction of rules, uh, honor uh, comes back into the picture and it ends up being valued more. And to the extent to which uh, states uh, conform to the rules to win honor, uh, then they make those rules uh, more robust. And this may be uh, one of the significant changes uh, underway uh, in the international system. 
And in the cultural theory book, I, I uh, argue that one can never predict what's going to happen. The most you can do is tell storylines. So I conclude by telling a storyline that leads us to an honor-based international system and one that simply reinforces that of standing and the importance of military power and therefore the importance of the U.S. as a leader. So it, it, there are two very different outcomes. No, uh, it, it's possible because now we have uh, a proliferation of hierarchies. So you uh, get honor across the so, hierarchy. So you have different hierarchies, and you can win honor within these within these different hierarchies. Uh, one of the ways in which it gets complex is, of course, these are two-level games. Uh, leaders are playing to domestic audiences as well as international ones. So uh, uh, one of the reasons uh, Hitler had so much support until he went to war huh, uh, was the extent to which Weimar German population uh, felt that they had been dishonored by the Treaty of Versailles, by the loss in war, and that Hitler was restoring German honor uh, by breaking down the treaty and winning standing abroad, even though, of course, Hitler was violating all the rules of the international game uh, to do this. So he gained standing, not honor at home, but he gained both standing and honor um, at home. So it becomes a very interesting and complex question uh, that involves two levels of analysis and, and how they may be reinforcing or cross-cutting. Yes, hi. You, you met uh, Bob McMahon, history yeah. and Mershon. You mentioned earlier that um, changing cultural conditions over time render certain motivations that were relevant, say, centuries earlier, uh, much less so. Right. And if that's a fair summation. I, I was wondering if, and maybe you've already written about this, I can't keep up with everything that you write. <laughs> um, Neither can I. <laughs> Does that, does that, on your mind, then, in your view, something like the democratic use theory, which is based on data over several centuries, would your argument then consistently wind up saying that, well, because a lot of this data is dealing with a period in which cultural conditions have significantly changed, it really isn't um, as valid as its proponents would have it? Let, let me answer that in two stages. What I argue at the end of the book is that um, I see uh, th uh, three waves of intellectual social change that have broken over the modern world, uh, each with a profound consequence for uh, war and its causes. Huh? And uh, the first 
was the uh, change in the conception of wealth that took place in the late 18th century. Until then, wealth was seen as finite. And so one nation's increase in wealth had to mean your poverty. And it wasn't until Adam Smith and Ricardo and others that economists and then ultimately political leaders began to understand that wealth wasn't finite, that a division of labor and mechanical energy and various other things uh, made it uh, possible to increase it. Uh, and, uh, moreover, uh, with further development of uh, economic theory, that having prosperous neighbors uh, meant more prosperity for you as well. And then subsequently the realization that economic growth and well-being really required a predictable environment, and that required peace, and that war, whatever its short-term benefits, was invariably bad uh, for, for the economy. So as a result, first intellectually and then as knowledge of this spread to the policy community, uh, war became disaggregated uh, from economy and it began to be seen as something that was not beneficial but, but harmful to it. Uh, I, I mean, the Marxists tell a different story, but I don't think it's, it, it's a right one. Uh, then we have the whole notion of security. And the initial notion of security was also one of autarky, that we needed to look after things ourselves. We could never trust in others. It was an anarchic environment, the story that realists still tell. And in my view, you know, they're just an atavism. They're describing a world that, you know, existed way back when, but doesn't really today, although in some corners of the world, obviously, it does. In the Middle East, I'd be at least in part a realist. And what happened is increasingly uh, through uh, the recognition that collective security would be better than individual security, the same way that institutions should manage economies, uh, we began gradually putting in place uh, institutions to manage security problems. So that uh, initially for what Karl Deutsch called the North Atlantic uh, community, but now increasingly the developed states um, of the world, uh, we've, for all practical purposes, a war among them has become um, unthinkable. Uh, and people feel uh, more secure because they've transcended uh, what we might call the security dilemma. Now, that development hasn't affected all of the world yet, and it may be a very long time before it does, but we're moving in that direction. And once again, it was initially an intellectual project Uh, and one that only gradually became feasible and gradually influenced uh, policymakers and still today uh, limited to a certain community. And that, to my way of thinking, explains what's called the democratic peace far more effectively than the democratic peace, which is still a questionable empirical finding in search of an explanation. Otherwise, the literature on that is, well, we can uh, talk about it. It's, uh, it's, it's, It's enigmatic. I'm arguing and this is the novelty of my book, that there's a third intellectual revolution underway. And it concerns the notion of honor and standing. And that this too was once thought to be advanced by war. But increasingly there's a recognition that it's not, and that war is contrary uh, to your desire for uh, honor and standing. 
that we have other mechanisms by which this is achieved. And of course, it's not the first time that somebody's tried to do this. Go back and think about the invention of the Olympics. Uh, the people who started this were motivated by the desire that states could compete in peaceful domains, uh, whether it was sports or medicine or rebuilding their cities, and they get standing and status this way, it would be peaceful and, and, and productive. Right? So this is this third intellectual revolution, and I'm trying to hasten it along uh, with my book and, and to show how there is growing realization among parts of the world and political leaders and uh, policy, uh, uh, information elites uh, that this is real, but it hasn't spread far enough, and the place that's absolutely central to it where it's most resistant is the United States. Uh, but I think like these other revolutions, in the end, it's going to be conquering. And I want to be part of that process. Yeah, last question. Uh, well, I've already asked. Who, who else had a hand in the air? Gentleman in the back. Um, this is Caleb. I'm from geography. Huh? Um, the, the thing I'm wondering about is, is pretty much everybody else, right? You know, when you talk about the places of realism, it's still works. Um, and it seems to me that if, you know, the, the causal mechanism here is uh, diversification of hierarchies. This is dependent on, you know, fairly substantial resource base, fairly developed economy, so that we actually have the wherewithal to sustain, you know, a, a, a social life in which we have, you know, multiple ways of achieving, you know, university systems, firms, uh, uh, things like sports that have, that are relatively, uh, you know, have no real, you know, tie to the actual reproduction of the society. So it seems like that that works well for the developed world. But, and then this is, this is one of the things that I'm wondering, in, in doing the coding, focusing on the great powers, I kind of wonder what the story is about what wars look like, I, uh, both interstate wars and interstate wars amongst weak powers throughout mm -hmm. the 20th century. So you've got uh, places like Central Africa, where, you know, as a result of being close to the areas, there aren't these sorts of other options for people. Mm -hmm. um, Well, I, I am and I'm not. I start off in the beginning with a, a chart, uh, which is not mine, but prepared by um, Gledich, that charts the number of interstate wars since 1945 in comparison with the number of intra-state wars. And, and John uses a version of this in, in, in his book as well. And it's clear that uh, interstate war has sharply diminished, but that intrastate civil war, civil violence of all kinds is a very powerful and in some ways rising um, phenomenon. And if we then look at the parts of the world where it takes place, uh, it's overwhelmingly in what, for lack of a better term, we call the less or underdeveloped parts of the world where you have the civil violence. Uh, and I would argue that analytically it makes sense in part to separate these two out. Uh, 
So I'm only addressing the interstate war phenomenon, uh, and I think I'm capturing that and its causes very well. Uh, the area of the world you're talking about is consumed by violence, but not, on the whole, by wars of states against the other. Uh, this doesn't mean, from a, a human point of view, that it isn't equally valuable, perhaps more so, of investigation. Uh, it wasn't the subject I chose to investigate because I think one has to uh, go about it a little differently, although there are some overlaps with interstate war. Okay, thank you very much.